0: Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, welcoming you back once again to the podcast. I mentioned this uh, a week or so ago, but I'll say it again today. Uh, I usually talk on this podcast about practical issues of ministry leadership, and I uh, reflect the kinds of conversations I have with ministry leaders as I travel and speak and interface with pastors and uh, organizational leaders. So if you have a particular issue that's uh, of concern to you, send an email to jeff orge at gs.edu and i will try to address that issue here on the podcast. Well, today i want to talk about the de- about developing a strategic perspective on the educational programs of your church. This is one of the most significant and i think negative changes in local church ministry that i've observed in my time of pastoral and organizational leadership. And I'm, speci- I'm speaking most specifically about my experience with Southern Baptist churches, and that may color some of what I'm going to say today more than it normally would, but I do want to speak specifically about what I consider to be the demise of the uh, sound educational programs that once marked many, if not most, Southern Baptist churches. Uh, in a previous era... Southern Baptist churches had an educational program that focused on being fully orbed, uh, that recognized developmental differences, and uh, embraced a progressive nature of of the discipleship process. Now, the downside of these programs, which caused them to ultimately be rejected by many churches, is that they became too programmatic in the sense that people became more focused in churches on accomplishing the program than on fulfilling the purposes for which those programs were created. Now, this is a failure of leadership, not a failure of strategy. But in throwing out the strategy, I think we've lost the significant educational resource that we once had uh, in many, if not most, Southern Baptist churches. So we've replaced that with uh, one worship service a week and, at best, one small group discussion-oriented Bible encounter every week that may be connected to the sermon or may use some standalone curriculum. And the standalone curriculum is often randomly selected, meaning that people pick and choose from different curriculum lines and different curriculum products and uh, base their curriculum choices on their own interests or what they feel like they're good at teaching or in some way what they feel like their hearers need in the moment. Uh, And this has been uh, pushed not only into adult ministry, but down into youth ministry, children's ministry, and preschool ministry. And it's particularly frustrating for me to watch what happens with children's and preschool programming in many churches because uh, it's become childcare-oriented, video-driven, And really uh, focused not on uh, a sound educational strategy based on the developmental needs of preschoolers and children but more on what adults perceive to be cool or um, attention-getting or in some way attractive to the community. It strikes me as interesting that most schools, public or private, haven't made this same mistake that the churches have made in reprogramming how, how children are educated. So today, rather than just continue to be a cranky old man venting or harping about how things ought to be or how they used to be, I want to lay out some ideas for you about developing a strategic perspective on the educational program of your church. And I'm not going to be advocating that you return to any particular program or that you launch any particular curriculum. Instead, I'm going to focus on the podcast today on having a strategic overview or a strategic perspective that once you adopt the strategy, then drives the decision-making you'll make into the organization. And I'll talk a little bit about some of those uh, practical steps as a part of this podcast, but this is more about a strategic perspective perspective than it is about a particular program or a particular curriculum. So let's thaw- staw- start with theological foundations. Most of us have a progressive understanding of the nature of discipleship. We believe that people continue to grow in their relationship with God over their lifetime. In fact, we extend it even to pre-conversion development, saying that uh, there's a pre-conversion phase of spiritual interest and development, which then moves a person to conversion, which then moves a person into a discipleship process. Uh, The Bible calls that sanctification. And there are very few Christians that practice or believe in Christian perfectionism, meaning that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're made perfect in him in every capacity of your character in that moment. Most of us believe that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're then put on a lifelong trajectory of spiritual development that we call discipleship. And so if that is our theological conviction, and it is for the most of us, then I ask this simple question, how is that theological conviction expressing itself in your disciple-making or your educational strategy as a church? If you have a progressive understanding of discipleship that extends from pre-conversion to conversion to a lifelong uh, process of sanctification, if you have this progressive nature of discipleship, then don't you also have to have an educational structure which recognizes this progressive nature and facilitates it as much as possible? Meaning that... In your preschool and early childhood curriculum design, you have a plan that recognizes these persons are in a pre-conversion mode of developing an understanding of God, an understanding of themselves, and an understanding of basic issues of how they can relate to God. Then moving into childhood, people move into the conversion phase or the time of life when conversion is possible and when people, most people, experience conversion during childhood and early childhood. Uh, the early teen years, and then into the teen and adult years where the sanctification process starts unfolding. And then do you have a process that recognizes that a person might be 32 years old and come to your church and be at the pre-conversion stage so that Even adults may come in with a very limited understanding of God or of themselves or of any aspect of how they can have a relationship with God. And so while they may be physically developed and they may even be socially developed, their spiritual growth or their spiritual development has been stunted in such a way that they are really at the preschool, pre-conversion phase when they first come into contact with your church or ministry. So, if this is our theological foundation for how we understand the discipleship process to unfold, then doesn't it make sense that we would put into practice a, an educational structure that reflects that progressive nature of our understanding of discipleship? And if we do, then that, that, that structure has to really have at least twofold, a twofold uh, perspective or a twofold perspective. A possibility. The first one is a lifelong possibility or a lifelong arc, pre-conversion, conversion, and then a lifelong of sanctification and development. And then particularly for older teens and adults, who were not a part of that lifelong developmental process, a process by which when they come in contact with our educational program, they can enter in the pre-conversion phase, move through the conversion phase before moving into the prolonged lifelong sanctification phase. So does your educational program at your church Reflect your theological conviction about the progressive nature of discipleship, from pre-conversion to conversion through sanctification. Meaning, all of that is the discipleship process. And do you have that only? Not do you have that not only for those who will be engaged with you for a lifetime, but also those who are going to engage with you later in life, who need to start the process maybe when they're a little bit older. Now, a second theological uh, foundation or theological aspect of this. Is that we must have then a continuum of ministry perspective, meaning that we recognize the spiritual developmental stages or phases that people move through and we have in our curriculum design and our program design uh, a reflection of that developmental and continuum of ministry uh, phasing that's a part of our programming. In other words, we move people along and we demarcate significant growth points or significant transition points and we move them along. Now this is more than the old Sunday school promotion idea where on a certain Sunday of the year you have promotion and everybody moves up. That certainly could be one expression of what I'm talking about, but we need to go beyond that to understand that we're not just moving people along, uh, passing the students no matter what grade they make, but we're moving people along with the expectation that they're going to accomplish certain things at each developmental phase and then be moved along to the next level in a formalized way that motivates them to grasp, uh, that motivates them to open themselves to learning a new level of development or moving on to another level of progress. Now, this can be done in lots of different kinds of ways, but I just want to give you one of my favorite illustrations. I'm acquainted with a church that does a tremendous job moving their children into their teenage ministry or their youth ministry or their students' ministry, depending on how you uh, label it in your church. They do a great job of moving their children into their student ministry. Here's what they do. They have an experience uh, each late in the spring, early in the summer each year, called the sixth grade ceremony. And this is a dress-up event. Sixth graders are invited to uh, come in their best clothing. Uh, Parents dress up for it. It's a Sunday night worship service at the church. Uh, The the, uh, church... Recognizes the sixth graders by name uh, and talks about their their development, their their development in the church's processes, their development in their school processes, and recognizes them for uh, how far they've come and for the growth they've achieved. Now, some of these kids are new to the church, new to new to Christianity, and so they make that make that clear as well. But every single child is recognized individually. Then. There's a message and a ceremony of celebrating and congratulating them for having come to this point in their lives where they're ready to move out of identifying themselves as children and into identifying themselves as teenagers, a part of the student ministry of this particular church. Now, uh, as soon as the sixth grade ceremony ends, all of the sixth graders are escorted out of the facility and put on uh, a bus. And the church rents a school bus for this, so they go out of the out of the service uh, to applause from everyone, and they all get on uh, this school bus. And they've been told to bring with them their backpack, a change of clothes, and basic things because they're now going to their first uh, student event, which is an overnight lock-in for uh, the uh, for them and for the youth group. That's why they normally do this early in the summer right after school's out so they can have this kind of a Sunday night, Monday morning event. When they arrive at the site where they're having the event, the sixth graders come off the bus and the rest of the youth group forms a a cordon, if you will. They, they form a double line leading into the facility, and they have banners that, that they hold up that say, welcome to the student ministry, and they have little signs with each one of the sixth graders' names It says, like, welcome Tommy, welcome Sarah, you know, welcome Jennifer, and they're waving these little signs, and they're clapping for these kids as they get off the bus, and while 10 or 15 sixth graders get off the bus, there's 30 or 40 teenagers that are clapping and cheering and waving these banners and signs, and seeing these kids come down through this gauntlet of, of prayer and welcome, if you will, and into the uh, lock-in experience. And the first thing they do is the whole youth group then follows them in, and they've prearranged this, and they pair off with two or three teenagers with each sixth grader. And they sit down in a little circle and say, hey, I, we want you to know who we are. And they tell their names and how long they've been at the church and where they go to school and what some of their interests are. And then they say to the sixth grader, now you tell us about yourself. And the sixth grader has the opportunity to do the same thing. And the reason they do this is because they want these sixth graders to know, hey look, you're, you're moving to another level of development now. We want you to become who we are and what, we, what we've learned, we want you to learn. There's no hazing, there's no difficulty, uh, there's no drama, there's no clicks. We're welcoming you into our group tonight and we want you to know you're, you're fully a part of who we are. And then they use, uh, they go into activities and fun things and games and late in the night they have a kind of a worship service experience and that kind of thing and typical youth event. When I first saw this, I was blown away by the intentionality and the thoroughness and the care that was being given to make sure that this transition took place and took place well. This is a church that recognizes we've been moving people along through the preschool years, through the childhood years, and now we're moving them into uh, a significant developmental step of the teen years, and we want to do that with a ceremony that marks this and shows them how significant this step is and how much we're expecting them to grow in these next few years. And then another part of this expressing our theological understanding and the progressive nature of our program design and this continuum of ministry design where we move people along through the process. I want you to also... Uh, focus on a climate of personal development, recognizing that each person is an individual. And so while we're going to have this grand strategic design and we're going to have a program that reflects our theology, we also have to understand that every single person is going to need some individual help along the way to stay on track and keep developing spiritually. So while you're moving from the macro to the micro, if you're moving from strategy to programming, you also have to remember to personalize this so that every uh, so that everyone has someone who, along the way, checks in with them, contacts them, and helps them with individual issues. This don't ha- don't ha- doesn't have to be over-programmed. It can be a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader. It can be a, a, a youth leader who's assigned a certain number of teenagers to keep up with and minister to on a regular basis. But it's just someone making sure that someone's asking them personally about their development. I remember when I was in the 6th 7th grade, and I first became a Christian, that I had an <clears throat> an older man that was my Sunday school teacher. I don't remember him being a great Bible teacher. I do remember him coming to my house occasionally, knocking on my door and saying, hey, Jeff, uh, just thought I'd drop by and talk to you for a few minutes and just see how you're doing. And he would say, how are things going in your family? How are things going at school? Uh, what are you learning at church that's new for you or that's confusing to you? Uh, how can I help you to follow God better? He just asked me simple questions like that. It wasn't a formalized mentoring program or something I had to complete a workbook or uh, make a check mark on a chart. It was just a person who every two or three months would check in with me personally and say, how's it going? And he asked me some direct questions about different areas of my life, especially about my spiritual development and growth. And frankly, I don't remember having long and profound conversations with him, but I do remember having repeated conversations, and I know how much those meant to me. And I could think about a couple of other guys that were the same kind of persons for me that were either small group leaders or Sunday school teachers or in some way in youth ministry assigned to take care of uh, keeping up with her, with me in a relational way. And just every now and then them checking in with me kept me going and helped me understand this church cared for me on a personal basis as well. So when we think about the theological foundations, for what we do in our educational programs i want you to think broadly about the the uh, pro, the uh, progressive nature of discipleship from pre-conversion to conversion to a life of sanctification and that our programs must uh, connect with that over a lifetime and almost also must connect with people who enter that kind of process later in life with both kind of developmental options available to them and then uh, moving from the micro down to the macro in the context of that somehow in our structure we have to have it Uh, we have to have a a possibility that a person can be connected with individually. And whether that's an outreach leader or a follow-up person or a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, but someone who, not every day, not every week, not even every month, but periodically is checking in with people individually to encourage them, answer their questions, and make sure they're effectively engaging this process. Now, as you're doing this, I want to talk now practically about what are some issues structuring an educational program that grow out of this kind of strategic view that I've been giving so far. Well, I would say that it's important to structure your educational program by listening to developmental specialists and education specialists Rather than doing something that seems popular or doing something that seems like it will meet the needs of uh, adults in your church that may think they know what's best for children or anyone who claims to be an expert based on their past experience. Now, not denigrating past experience or denigrating the input of others, but it's important to recognize developmental stages and to create learning environments and curriculum design that meets those developmental needs. I'll give you some examples of mistakes I commonly see made and it's probably because I'm married to a preschool specialist uh, that I recognize these but when I walk into a preschool classroom and I see a wall with a huge mural like a Noah's Ark mural, I shake my head. There's no three-year-old child who cares about a Noah's Ark mural and it doesn't do anything for them educationally and it doesn't help them to have a better learning environment. A three-year-old child sees the wall sees the wall from the floor up to about two and a half to three feet, and that's all they see. And so what really matters is what's on the wall at their eye level in their classroom. And it's better to have a a plain beige wall, but have things on the wall from the three-foot-down level that they can see, that they can touch, and that are scaled to their size so that when they see it, they're not overwhelmed by it, but they see it as something that they can learn from and take in and process through uh, through their developmental eyes. Another one I see is lots of preschool rooms just have way too much furniture in them. Preschool children are often kinetic learners, or even if they're not primarily kinetic learners, they have a kinetic need to be involved with what they're with learning by doing. Uh, That's why good preschool classrooms have uh, uh, areas on the floor for children to build things, to model things, to put things together. Uh, That's why there's a lot of opportunity for role play in a child's in a preschool classroom, like a kitchen center. painting center or a uh, a, 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 a reading center where they can actually enter into activity and be a part of something rather than just having it done for them. And so these are simple kinds of things that I often observe, and again it's probably because I've been married to a preschool specialist all these years, but in every age level, preschool, children, teenage, adult, there needs to be an understanding of the learning environment and what needs to happen in that context. For example, when we built the seminary, uh, we asked our faculty to do some some specific research on adult learning environments. And we had our architect uh, design the paint schemes and the furnishings in our rooms for adult learners, not 18-year-olds just coming out of high school. That's not who's in our classrooms. Our classrooms are full of students average age 35, which means many of the students are 50. And, uh, and, and that means that we have an adult learning environment where the chairs that they're going to be sitting in need to be scaled for their bodies and their physical needs, the paint colors, the technology that's available, uh, the kinds of things that are permitted in the classrooms like consuming food or snacks or those kinds of things, and the flooring and all that goes along with that. This is what it means to design an adult learning environment. And so thinking through these issues requires a developmental specialist who can look at your situation and help you uh, to do it well. And you say, well, I can't afford that. You don't have to afford it. Call your local Southern Baptist Association. Ask them for the help that, that they can provide you through the expertise that they have developed in their staff and in their volunteer staff. Call your local state convention and ask them for that kind of help. There are all kinds of people that are available in Southern Baptist life that have these specialties and have this training that would be more than glad to consult with you on a free basis to help you design the learning environment that you need. I would also say that it's important uh, in the context of creating these structures and these programs to design an educational process that includes more than classes. Uh, Many people do learn by sitting in a class and hearing information, but more people learn if they're also able to put those things into practice through projects, events, and other activities. Uh, For example, my son came home from a youth camp when he was in middle school and said, "Dad." I don't ever want to go to another one of those. Please don't make me go to youth camp ever again. He said, I want to go to world changers. I want to build a house or something. I don't mind Bible study, and, and and I don't mind hard work, and I want to learn by doing something, more than just playing silly games and sitting in a class. Well, I couldn't really argue with that, so we let our son stop going to youth camp. Now, we didn't stop having youth camp, and other kids that we had went to youth camp, but. Our oldest son particularly said, Dad, I like to do things, and I like to learn by doing. And so we put him into a world changers type program called Impact Northwest when we lived in the Pacific Northwest, and every summer he paid money to sleep on the floor of a gymnasium and work 12-hour days uh, doing hands-on physical labor to support the work of ministry that we were doing in that community, and loved it and still talks about it as his most cherished teenage church memory was doing those kinds of work projects. Uh, another way to do this is a church that I really respect that has, un- has learned that, uh, or has put into their developmental plan, uh, or to their educational plan, this developmental understanding that people often learn more by teaching something than by sitting and learning it over, and or having it taught to them over and over again. So what they do is this. Uh, they have a children's camp every year. But in preparation for children's camp, they allow their student ministry, their teenagers, to lead the children's camp. And when I say lead, I've been there as the camp pastor. They lead the camp. They are fully responsible for the Bible teaching and for so many of the activities that support the Bible teaching and for so much of the personal interaction that goes on with children. Now, these teenagers go into a training program every January or February, and from January or February through March, April, May, every week they're in a training program, not teaching them something from the Bible, but teaching them how to teach others from the Bible, and they spend those three months developing their lessons, developing their activities, learning how to use the curriculum that's been provided, and really focusing on becoming skilled teachers that can lead a summer camp. Now, when they go to camp, this is where it's really cool. The seventh graders teach the first grade, the eighth graders teach the second grade, and so on, and the high school seniors teach the sixth graders. And so you have this developmental process taking place where as I get older, I'll keep teaching older children. And as I'm developing more, I'll be teaching people who are also developing more. And this church has been doing this for years so that it's built up this healthy process of training teenagers to be teachers and leaders And in the process of doing that, they learn themselves so much about the material that they're preparing to teach and lead, and then when they go to the summer camp, they have this experience of being a teacher and a leader and having full responsibility for making sure that happens in the camp context, and then over the development of their years in the student ministry, they keep moving up each year to another grade, which challenges them to keep learning and keep growing. Is it any wonder that this church has produced significant numbers of young adults who go into ministry leadership? Why? (laughs) Because they've trained them and used them so effectively in their camp program over the years. That's what I mean by, uh, that's two examples of what I mean by developing a educational program that does include classes, absolutely but also includes other learning opportunities like doing and learning by doing, my son's experience, are learning to teach and guide others and learning the material while you're learning how to teach others, but then having to teach it to others and learning the developmental process of becoming a leader through that experience. So you may say, well, we can't do that because we don't have that big of a church. We can't do a full camp. Why not impl- apply the same principle to Vacation Bible School so that your student ministry become primary workers for you in the Vacation Bible School context. And you may say, well, how did the adults relate to all this? Well, uh, every one of those groups at the camp I've just described had an adult coach Uh, that met and was in the room and was able to troubleshoot and problem-solve and and, and help the teenagers do the project. But these coaches had also been trained not to step in, not to take over, and not to uh, subvert what needed to happen, but to coach and help and strengthen so these teenagers took the responsibility and followed through on what they had been trained to do uh, during the training program or training process. Well, I've talked about some theological foundations and a couple of practical ideas about what this looks like when you develop a strategic perspective on your educational program. The last thing I want to say is this, and I want to say this specifically to pastors. You have to also personally invest in this process. Now, that doesn't mean you teach every class or go to every training, but one of the best things you can do as a pastor to communicate to the educational leaders of your church the value you place on their work is by showing up from time to time. Uh, appropriately arrange times to visit classes. Step into training opportunities and either help lead the training or congratulate and motivate those who are involved in doing that training. People that are learning to lead and are experimenting with these leadership opportunities like I've just described this youth group, uh, step into those opportunities and let them know how much this means to you and to the church and how much you observe this being important in their future spiritual development. Uh, Pastors don't have to lead the educational programs of their church. By that, I mean they don't have to be the administrative guide who shows up at every meeting, chooses all the curriculum, makes sure everything gets taken care of, and uh, and and all the slots are filled. That That's not necessarily your responsibility, although it may be in a very small church, but it doesn't have to be your responsibility. But it doesn't mean because you're not responsible for the detail of it that you can just hand it over to someone else and not invest yourself personally in it. So find strategic ways to encourage your education leaders, to help them think strategically about what they're doing, to support the development of this kind of uh, overarching strategic design that I'm advocating, and then to show up personally, engaging people in this process, and helping them know that you believe in it and you think it's an important part of the total work of your church. A strategic perspective on an educational program is what we need. This hodgepodge idea of picking and choosing this class and that curriculum and this uh, literature and Uh, and and that approach, this video or this babysitter, that's not going to produce disciples like we need. And so while I'm not saying we have to go back to the old programs or the old ways, I am saying that we need to go back to the old strategy, which was an integrated program of educational development that reflected our theological convictions about the disciple-making process. And if we can do that, we will continue to build the disciples we need for future churches. Hey, think about it, put it into practice when you lead on.